Well, good morning, Ocean View and Ocean View Online. So June is upon us. I believe it's June already, and we have a new series for June. Uh, really, it is a non-series. It's going to be a mixture of topics, and I'm just calling it June Fusion because I don't quite know what else to call it. So this week is the water. We're going to talk about baptism. Next week, we have the preacher, and our lead pastor candidate, Scott Hemingway, will be bringing the message. And the week after that is Father's Day, so we're going to look at the warrior. And uh, so this week is the water, baptism. Now, we've got a couple of our youth who are looking to be baptized, and that is scheduled to happen on June 16th, and that's typically when we have a summer baptism in the ocean. However, these two girls are going to be at Camp Quanos on the step-out program. So, we're still going to do it. And we are just all going down to camp after the service. And uh, in the break between camps at 12.30, we're going to do the baptism down there with some of their step-out cohorts there as well. So, the question that is always asked is, we talked about baptism, so what's baptism all about? Especially since there are different kinds of baptisms in different churches. This is doctrinally a Baptist church. We are in the Fellowship Baptist denomination. What's the deal with baptism? It can be a bit confusing. So I am going to start with a bit of history from my college days, Dr. Richard's Church History Class 201. Um, Baptist denomination, as a, as a denomination, dates from the 17th century, the 1600s. That is 400 years ago. The Baptist faith itself, though, deals right from the first century, proclaiming the simple faith of the New Testament church. So let, let's go back a few hundred years, probably like 500 years. It is the Reformation. The biggest changes to the new world was the invention of the printing press. Books could be copied and sold more easily than ever before. Ideas could be exchanged. Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press, and very quickly, things started to change. It's one of the reasons that the Renaissance, the Reformation, came into being. It is the same type of change that happened as we had the Internet. And now, globally, we find out everything that's going on Sometimes before it even happens. 17th century England. It's the 1600s. The Reformation is happening across Europe. It now comes down and it begins to find its way into England. There is a reforming of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church once held a monopoly, in a sense, on Christian experience. Under King Henry VIII, the Church of England replaced the church, the Roman Catholic Church. Martin Luther led a sweeping changes in Germany. John Calvin pioneered a whole new movement in Geneva, Switzerland. The Bible translations are now in your own language. And it allowed even with the printing press, allowed even the common people to read the Bible. Now that, in turn, caused more questions. 
more changes. Changes that were not always welcomed. There is social and political changes involving people. And in England, there were many Christians who were demanding more reforms than what the Church of England had initiated or could even tolerate at the time. Two groups grew out of the reforms in England. The one group is the Puritans. Now, the Puritans, they were searching for a purity of doctrine and practice. And they were reading their Bibles and they were saying, what did Jesus do? What did that early church do? But the Puritans decided not to make a radical break with the church, the church of England or even a bit of the, of the Catholic uh, background. So the Puritans uh, did have a number of independent branches of the church of England. They were autonomous, but they didn't want to make that radical break from the English church. But then there were the separatists, and these are basically frustrated Puritans. They, they felt that the, the, the Reformation, it didn't go far enough. The Church of England didn't go far enough, and they began to separate from the Church of England. Then they were people like the Quakers, the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists, and Baptists. Again, early 1600s, we have a man by the name of John Smith, or Smythe. I'm not quite sure how it's pronounced, Smythe. He was a minister, an ordained minister in the Church of England. But he did hold some Puritan views. He was dedicated to the Bible and understanding biblical doctrine and practice. But he was feeling that the biblical reform in the Church of England had failed. They had not gone far enough to return the church to its biblical roots. So he joined a separatist congregation in Gainsborough, which is near London. At the time, it was dangerous to meet openly. If you were not meeting at the recognized state church, the Church of England, then you were not to be meeting at all. He eventually chose to separate themselves, these people at Gainsborough chose to separate themselves from the Church of England because they believed it was beyond redemption due to its Roman Catholic past and the church's resistance to reform. It forced these people to pray in private. Now as their group grew, it became too obvious, so they divided this group in Gainsborough. So one group became known as the Scrooby Manor Group. The Scrooby Dooby Doos. <laughs> I don't think that's what they were called. However, that's how I remember it. Their leaders were John Robinson, William Brewster, and William Bradford. They became known, or they were the nucleus of the Pilgrim Fathers, and they sailed to North America on the Mayflower. So that is your whole Mayflower group out of the Puritans. And they chose that as their form of freedom to worship in a biblical way. The other group was known as the Gainsborough Group. And they stayed at Gainsborough, and they were led by John Smythe and Thomas Helwes. There was significant persecution, though, by King James I. That is the King James of the King James Bible. And the idea was, you go to the Church of England. You don't go anywhere else. And he vowed to deal harshly with anyone who refused to attend the Church of England. So these Gainsborough group stayed in London at first, but they were in daily danger. 
So then the magical year, 1607. 1607, the Gainsborough group were finally fed up and they migrated to Holland, to Amsterdam. There was more religious freedom on the, uh, in, in the Holland area. They settled in Amsterdam and in Amsterdam they came in contact with the Dutch Mennonites. And the Mennonites were a group of reformers that followed Menno Simons. This was the early beginning of the Mennonites. And uh, Menno Simons was, uh, that, was that, that was all the connection that kind of came in there. Within two years, 1609, the group became convinced on the need for a personal confession of faith in Jesus. Have you chosen to follow Jesus? What is your personal story, your, your testimony? And they biblically realized that it, once you choose to follow Jesus, you should be followed by believer's baptism. So John Smith baptized himself because he was a, a minister in the Church of England. He was ordained. He baptized himself, and then he baptized the others and most likely did it by sprinkling or pouring because that was the method that they knew. And it was, but it was for believers only. Now it's interesting that John Smith went on to join the Mennonite group. But two years later, Thomas Helwes led a proportion of the group back to London and they set up the first Baptist church in London. Thomas Helwes later died in Newgate Prison under the persecution of King James I. By 1640, so in about 30 years, two Baptist churches became convinced that baptism should be by immersion, that totally immersing a person rather than sprinkling or pouring. And they sent Richard Blunt to Holland to confer with a group of Mennonites who practiced immersion. By 1650, all the churches, the 47 general Baptist churches in London, were practicing immersion. And by 1660, their first confession of faith actually called for baptism by immersion only for believers. This group became known as Baptist. Now, it was a name given to them by their opponents. Oh, you're, you're one of those Baptists, aren't you? And uh, because of the practice of immersion, they didn't like the name. They did not want to be called Baptists. They preferred to be called Brethren or the Brethren of the Baptized Way. Just think of that. You're going, Brethren of the Baptized Way. Long, long title. One of the most famous Baptists of that era was this fellow, John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress when he was in jail, in Bedford Jail, 1660 to 1672. Now, do not confuse John Bunyan with Paul Bunyan. I was giving a devotional at college, my first year in college, and uh, everybody gave a devotional after supper. I gave a devotional, and I wanted to refer to John Bunyan, and I referred to Paul Bunyan. And everybody's laughing, and I can't figure out why they're laughing. And afterwards, they said, you said Paul Bunyan and Blue, Fo Blue Ox. And it's like, no, no, okay, I got it all wrong. So John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress while in Bedford Jail for speaking out about his Puritan views. He was one of those early 
Baptist. Um, Baptists, uh, someone put it all neatly together. What were Baptists all about? B-A-P-T-I-S-T-S is believers' baptism by immersion. A, the autonomy of the local church. The priesthood of all believers. By that it means uh, everyone has the opportunity to read the Bible and interpret it for themselves. The priesthood of all believers. You, you are a priest before God. You can go to God. You don't have to go through a priest or anybody else. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can pray to God on your own, the priesthood of all believers. Two ordinances, baptism and communion, and they believed in ordinances, not sacraments. A sacrament means something happened and grace is given. There's a magic formula to it. They said, no, baptism and communion are simply two orders, two rules given by Jesus. They are commands, two commands. Individual soul liberty means an individual can look at Scripture themselves. They're not dictated to by anyone else. There is a saved church membership. So you are a member, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a confession of faith, you're a church member. Whereas other churches coming out of the Catholic Church would be, as soon as you were born, as an infant, you were accepted into membership. And many Reformation churches as well kept that idea as well. They believe in two offices. There is a pastor and a deacon. Not all the other bishops and an archbishops and all this stuff. It's simply a pastor and deacon, which are more um, Greek words. The idea would be a leader and helpers. Leaders and helpers. They believed in the separation of church and state. In other words, the church deals with its stuff, and the state should keep itself out of the church's business. They do, however, separate from the Mennonites in this, in that they said it in the statement was that we would pray for our magistrates, but keep politics separate. Okay. Well, that's your history lesson. There will be a test next week, and you can <laughs> fill it out and see if you, how, if you pass or not. So where did baptism come from? Even that is still, you look through history and kind of go, baptism is a little bit of a strange uh, thing. Why do we do baptisms? Well, let me take you back 2,000 years. Let's go to Judea during the time of Jesus. And we have what's called the mikvah. Jewish tradition still has mikvahs in certain synagogues today. But this was the grand mikvah of Jerusalem. This is known as the Pool of Siloam. Do you remember the story of Jesus? Uh, healing a man, and uh, he's, he put mud on his eyes, says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Here is, this is a drawing of the pool of Siloam. The mikvah, this, and there were all over, usually outside of a synagogue, you would have a mikvah, and it would be a, sort of a full hot tub style, only it wouldn't be hot tub, although pretty warm there, and it had the idea of ceremonial washing, cleansing, now, the Pool of Siloam sits right at the entrance of the gate of the city of David, and the, there's a walkway, I'll show you in the next picture, that goes all the way up to the temple. So before you went to the temple, you would cleanse yourself. John the Baptist would baptize people in the Jordan River if they were repentant or had a change of heart, wanted to follow God more sincerely. This picture you see here is the archaeological excavation of the Pool of Siloam today. It was done about 2014. They were repairing a sewer line. 
And as they were repairing the sewer line, they happened to hit marble. And as soon as you do that in the city of David, all work stops, archaeologists come in. And as they dug and worked at it, they realized they had actually discovered the original Pool of Siloam. And this is the Pool of Siloam. What was so important about this pool is it led right to what's called the Pilgrim Road, the road that went up to the temple. It had been lost for 2,000 years. 2014, they actually discovered it. Down at the bottom of that picture, you see a little bit of blue. That is the Pool of Siloam. And that road goes up to the temple. And they have been excavating it in the last 10 years. Here is a picture of the Pilgrim Road. The next picture. There is a whole city over top of the Pilgrim Road. There are villages, everything over. And so the Jerusalem archaeologists have come up with a whole engineered system of steel going over top of those marble steps. They were specifically designed not to be even those steps. They're short steps, long steps. And you wonder, what is this? And there's steps all up, not a roadway. No cart would go on this. And no one was to run up to the temple. It was designed so that you would have to walk sedately and carefully up to the temple in all reverence. In 70 AD, the Romans attacked Jerusalem because of their resistance to Roman rule. And under Titus, they surrounded the city and they subdued it. They got in. And the soldiers were so incensed that they destroyed the whole of Jerusalem. Here is a picture of what the, ro uh, what the roadway would have looked like, this next one. There are shops on all sides. People would be making their way up to temple. Heavy during the Pentecost or during Passover would be just almost, they say, up to a million people would be going up to the temple. When the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, they caved all those walls and stores in on the road and the road was totally lost for 2,000 years. What is uh, interesting is that marble is almost in pristine condition today. It, uh, it was completed under Pontius Pilate, 30 AD. Jesus walked those steps and 40 years later it was completely covered and hidden for 2,000 years, and they've only just discovered it. That, uh, on the sides, there were some platforms. That is a speaker's platform for different teachers and stuff on the way up. Most likely, this would be where Peter preached on the day of Pentecost to the many people who were there. And there, all those converts, those 3,000 converts, would be taken down the road to the bottom to the Pool of Siloam, a mikvah, and would be baptized. That's where baptism comes in. Converts would be taken down to the Pool of Siloam at the bottom of the road. The mikvah was part of Jewish tradition, and it works its way into Christianity. Why do we baptize? Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Jesus talks to his disciples and he says, As you are going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Jesus' command was to make disciples. And how do you make disciples? You baptize and you teach. 
So what's the meaning of baptism? Why do we baptize only believers? The cleansing from sin and being born into a new life are conditional upon faith in Jesus. Only believers are baptized in the New Testament. Acts 16, immediately he and all his family were baptized. And this is the jailer in, uh, in Philippi. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Now, baptism is not necessary for salvation. You don't need to be baptized in order to go to heaven. That's not what this is about. Baptism is a public act of commitment and testimony. We accept Jesus privately, but we express that decision publicly, what Jesus has done for us. So baptism is about your publicly standing with Christ. We wear labels. Hey, it's, it's cool to identify ourselves sometimes, isn't it? Sports team, uh, a favorite beer, uh, golf, uh, special labels. It's not just a green shirt. It's a Mondetta or a Pogo. You are identified for the rest of your life. You're labeled with Christ. It's like wearing that shirt making an outward declaration that I am identified with Christ. I'm a follower of Jesus, and we publicly stand with and for him. In Galatians, it says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. You're passionate more than anything else about your relationship with Christ, his call and ministry for you and through you. And I've had so many people say, well, I don't want to be baptized in front of so many people. And I have to kind of go, yeah, but that's the whole point, is that we are letting people know that I am following Jesus. The second thing about baptism is you are baptized into Christ's death. It's a symbol. In Romans it says, oh, or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. It's great symbolism in baptism. Your old nature dies and you are buried into death. You are buried in a watery grave. Then like Jesus, we're raised from the dead. And you explode out of the water. You're raised to walk in newness of life. Your old nature is put to death. So why do we baptize by immersion? Well, it is the symbol. It's the whole symbolism of baptism. Cleansing, yes, get up and be baptized, wash your sins away, calling on his name is, uh, is what Ananias said to Saul. But then in Romans here we have, we're buried with him through baptism. It is a symbolism of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We baptize by immersion, like right into the water and out of the water because of that symbolism. Jesus, uh, all through the New Testament, it sounds like it is baptizo, to dip, to go right in. He went up out of the water. Jesus was baptized underwater. John and the Baptist, it says, uh, they baptized in the Jordan because there was plenty of water. There was need for water. Ethiopian eunuch and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him when they came up out of the water. The mikvah in Jewish tradition was always about full immersion in the water. Now, over the years, <coughs> after Jesus, infant baptism came in. And now, I need to say, infant baptism has different meanings 
than what believer's baptism does. And we need to separate those two ideas. Sometimes people say, well, baptism's baptism. Well, no. Doctrinally, we're talking about two different things. There are indications from early church buildings that baptism was by immersion. Some very old basilicas actually had a tank at the front, not a font. Now, at some point in the early church, baptism became identified with salvation. You needed to be baptized in order to be saved, to go to heaven. And when infant mortality was so high, babies, there was a chance 50% of the babies would die within the first couple of years. So Christian parents wanted their children to go to heaven. But, hey, they could die young. We never know, even soon after birth. And so we would baptize them. But dunking them in the water tended to be a little hazardous to their health, just as much as the illness was. So it kind of evolved into pouring and sprinkling. That would go a whole lot faster, and you didn't end up with little ones drowning. So theology developed around this over the years. Roman Catholic tradition also involves the removal of original sin. So in Roman Catholic uh, doctrine, it says, you remember our pandemic sermon? Adam and Eve's sin passed on to all generations. Genetically, we receive Adam's sin, known as original sin. And so some churches see the baptism of infants as taking away original sin, cleansing us from original sin. Now, all your other sins, you've got to have them dealt with through the church, but baptism takes care of original sin. Now, uh, the Catholic Church and other denominations, baptism is also viewed as membership in the church community. So children of believing parents are brought into the Christian community at an early age. It provides a sense of belonging, a sense of responsibility. Um, John Calvin and Reformed Theology went that route. And they actually said re it was replacing Old Testament circumcision with baptism. So as a Jewish boy was eight days old, he would be circumcised, indicating he was part of the community. He was part of the Jewish community. And then at 12 uh, or 13, 11, 12, 13 would be their bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah for girls where they would learn all about their responsibilities under the law and they would be accepted as a full member of the community. So that kind of transferred into some early churches as well. For many, baptism is bringing children into the Christian community with the hope of raising them into the faith, making them members of the community. When infants and children brought into the community, it's assumed that they will eventually go through confirmation, where they confirm what their parents and the church wanted for them. And it could be a time of belief, and for many it is, for many it was. Believer's baptism is different. What was ignited 400 years ago during the Reformation days was a theology of believer's baptism. Only when you become a believer in Jesus Christ were you baptized. Baptism is a symbol of what Jesus has done for you. And this is the critical point of baptism. It's not salvation. 
It's not about joining a church group. It's not about original sin. It is simply saying, I am a follower of Jesus. It isn't even about immersion or pouring or sprinkling. It's all about faith in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. There were some uh, people that, you know, you kind of think as people pass away, you wonder, what, what were their last words? Here are some famous last words. They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. General John Sedgwick, Union commander who died in 1864 during the U.S. Civil War <laughs> from a cannonball. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth I, Queen of England, 1603. All my possessions for a moment of time. Uh, Winston Churchill, uh, 1965. I'm bored with it all. Before slipping into a coma, he died nine days later. Uh, Julius Caesar, about 44 B.C., et tu, Brute, as he was assassinated, meaning you too, Brutus. Uh, Lady Nancy Astor, am I dying or is this my birthday? When she awoke briefly during her last illness and found all her family standing around her bedside, <laughs> is it my birthday or am I dying? Uh, I like this one. This is Ethan Allen, revolutionary general. Uh, 1789 in the, in the United States. In response to an attending doctor who attempted to comfort him by saying, General, I fear the angels are waiting for you. <laughs> and Ethan Allen said, Waiting, are they? Waiting? Well, let them wait. <laughs> uh, now, these are probably the most famous last words. These are Jesus' last words to his followers. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. This is known as the Great Commission, the church's mission. God so loved the world that he became one of us in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. He was born of a virgin. He lived a completely sinless life. And for the sins of the world, Jesus gave his life on a cross. He died and was buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Just after his resurrection, he assembled his disciples and gave them one last piece of instruction. What Jesus did not say is to build a church building. Did not say, build a building and say, come to us. He said, basically, if you are the church, be the church in the world. Get out of the building, go into the world, to everywhere, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and be the light of Jesus Christ. Lift his name high as he draws people to himself. Make disciples, make them followers of Jesus, and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that is our commission. That is our job today. Would you come and pray for us?